hundreds of years after this prophecy, a carpenter from Nazareth walked along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Seeing some fishermen mending their nets, he called out to them, come, follow me. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. They had no idea of the adventure that lay ahead. They witnessed Jesus healing, the blind could see, the lame could run, even the dead were raised back to life. They experienced Jesus's radical love. He touched lepers, ate with sinners, and invited former prostitutes onto his team. They saw storms instantly cease, heard evil spirits shriek. They witnessed a massive crowd fed from one boy's lunchbox. And finally, rigged trials, horrendous torture, and brutal crucifixion. They saw the sun stop shining as God's son stopped breathing. But then, to their amazement, he was back, risen from the dead, the Lord of life. Now, this same Jesus calls to us by his spirit and says, come, follow me. Now we're invited into the greatest adventure of all. On our journey through the storyline of the Bible, we have reached the New Testament. Welcome to session six, Jesus and the Gospels. So today, we reach Jesus and the New Testament. And in part one of this session, we will introduce the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And then in part two, provide a tour of Jesus' extraordinary life. Now the word Gospel comes from a two-part English word, God's spell or God's story. So the four Gospels record the moment when God entered his own story and walked onto the stage of human history. Now the fact that there are four Gospels shows just how crucial Jesus is to the whole Bible. Now there are plenty of other historical sources outside the Bible that prove that Jesus really existed. But the four Gospels at the start of the New Testament give the most detailed accounts of his life. However, unlike most biographies, the Gospels only briefly mention Jesus' first 30 years. Instead, they focus on his final three years. And they go into slow motion for his final week, as if to say, this is not a typical end. His death is the climax of his life. So their clear intention was not just to record a great life from the past, but to call us to put our faith in Jesus now. John's Gospel concludes with this statement of intent. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So after reading the Gospels, we must face the most important question of all. Do we believe that Jesus is God's Son and will we make him our Lord and Saviour? Now, even though all four Gospels have that one aim in mind, their style is quite different because they're written for different audiences. So let me briefly introduce each Gospel so that we can get a feel for them. 
Firstly then, Matthew was a gospel written for the Jews. Matthew himself was a Jewish tax collector. Now the tax office today is not popular, but in those days, in the first century, they were really hated because they served the Roman occupying forces. But Jesus invited Matthew to be one of his closest followers. So he got to witness the events of Jesus' life firsthand. As a Jew, Matthew shows then how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. He quotes it over a hundred times to show that Jesus really is the long-awaited Messiah. And Matthew's gospel deliberately draws our attention to similarities between Israel's story and Jesus. Do you remember all those global promises that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12? Well, Matthew starts his gospel tracing Jesus' family tree all the way back to Abraham. All those promises will be fulfilled in Jesus. And do you remember in session three, Israel went down to Egypt and faced genocide there? Well, because of King Herod, Jesus was taken down to Egypt and his family were refugees there. Then in his adult life, Jesus echoed the story of Israel. Israel was founded on 12 tribes. Jesus chose 12 apostles. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Israel received teaching from Moses on a mountain. Jesus taught crowds on a mountain. Jesus's Sermon on the Mount contains the most sublime words any human has ever uttered. So Matthew is clear. Jesus is the anointed Messiah King. In him, all the unfinished business of the Old Testament will be sorted out. Now, Mark is a gospel for the Romans. John Mark was a friend and interpreter for one of Jesus' closest followers, the Apostle Peter. John was a common Jewish name, but Mark was a Roman name. So John Mark connects the Jewish Jesus with the Roman Empire. And his gospel is fast-paced and action-packed, the shortest of them all. It opens with a really bold claim. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This was controversial, as Son of God was a title the Roman Emperor claimed for himself. But by the end of the gospel, as Jesus dies on a Roman cross, a Roman centurion who oversaw the execution echoed the opening line. Surely this man was the Son of God. And by the end of Mark's gospel then, a Roman centurion was converted. By the end of the fourth century, the Roman emperor was converted. Jesus truly is the Son of God. Now, Luke is a gospel for all humanity. Luke was an educated doctor and the only non-Jewish writer in the New Testament. His concern was to show that Jesus is the saviour of all people. So Luke's gospel opens with a family tree that traces Jesus' ancestry all the way back to Adam, the father of the human race. So Jesus is the new Adam, 
bringing hope to humanity. And the message of Jesus then must be taken to the whole world. Think of this from Luke's perspective. As a doctor, imagine someone discovered a cure for cancer. That groundbreaking news would be announced to the entire world. Luke is convinced that Jesus can save everyone from the even more deadly disease of sin. So Luke's gospel finishes with a global promise, forgiveness of sins will be preached in Jesus' name to all nations. And then there's John's gospel. Now this one is a bit different. It opens with a theological statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. By starting with, in the beginning, John deliberately echoed the first line of the Bible, indicating that through Jesus, the whole cosmos is getting a new start. Then John goes on to state, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We call this the incarnation. Carne means flesh or meat, like chili con carne, chili with meat. So the incarnation refers to the moment when God entered our humanity, God in the flesh, God living with us as one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now in John's gospel, Jesus reveals his identity through a series of signs and sayings. The signs are miracles that Jesus performs, and the I am sayings explain them. For example, Jesus provides bread for thousands of hungry people and then says, I am the bread of life. He heals a blind man and says, I am the light of the world. He raises a dead man and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Maybe your life feels empty right now, or you've struggled with the darkness of depression or the pain of bereavement. I found meditating on these I am sayings of Jesus can inject fresh hope into our hearts. Now, of course, by using the words I am, Jesus deliberately took the divine name that was revealed to Moses at that burning bush. He was using God's signature for himself, claiming to be the ultimate revelation of the great I am. Recently, I was at a conference and I met someone who knew a friend of mine. And they said to me that line, I've heard so much about you, it's great to finally meet you. Now that's actually a pretty good summary of the whole Bible story. In the Old Testament, we've heard so much about God. In Jesus, it's great to finally meet him. As a boy, this tiny Russian version of Luke's gospel fascinated me, not least because it's waterproof. I know, I tested it. Now, why is it waterproof? Because these were smuggled into former communist states where it was illegal to own a Bible. So if they heard a suspicious noise or there was a knock at the door, they would drop it into their cup of tea. The last place that the KGB would think of looking. People risk their lives to have a copy of the Gospels. They are so valuable. We should treasure them, and most importantly, we should read them.
Now, before we go any further, you may still be wondering, but are these Gospels reliable? Or could the stories have been made up? Well, all four Gospels were published within the lifetime of Jesus' contemporaries. The earliest was probably Mark's Gospel, soon after 60 AD. Now, until then, eyewitnesses passed on the stories of Jesus from memory. Now, in the days before digital memory, they had superb mental recall that preserved all the details. But as the first generation of eyewitnesses began to die out, the Gospels were written to capture their authentic record. And recent scholarship has demonstrated that the Gospels contain so much local information, they must have come from eyewitnesses who were really present. But someone might interrupt, okay, but what about the differences between the Gospel accounts? Don't they contradict each other? For example, in Mark's Gospel, Jesus healed the blind man, Bartimaeus. But in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus healed two blind men in seemingly the same incident. Now, isn't that a contradiction? Well, a while ago, my wife and I witnessed a burglary. We were in our flat, which overlooked a school playground, and one Saturday morning, I saw two men carrying computers across the playground to a van. So I called the police, and then I called Charlotte, who watched from another room, so we both witnessed the same events, but from different perspectives. The police arrived, the burglars ran for it, and one of them was caught. Then the police took our witness statements separately before we had a cup of tea together, at which point I said, it's a shame that only one of the burglars was caught. To which Charlotte replied, no, no, two burglars were caught. Now it turned out that my wife was right again. <laughs> From her window, she'd seen that there were in fact three burglars, but from my vantage point, I could only see two. I was then worried that our statements might sound made up, but the police reassured us that witness statements are deemed reliable precisely because the details differ in places. The variety is a sign of authenticity. Luke's gospel focused in on one blind man, Bartimaeus. Matthew's Gospel completes the picture by noting there was a second blind man. The variety is a sign of authenticity. So the four Gospels give different perspectives on the one historic Jesus. So summing it all up, how should we read the Gospels? Well, firstly, get the big picture. There's an old Chinese proverb, the best way to see a field of flowers is on horseback. In other words, experience the full impact of the colour at speed. One of the best ways to encounter Jesus is to experience the whole of his life in one sitting. So why not choose one of the Gospels, carve out a couple of hours and read it through? Sometimes I've invited friends to do this with me. We read a Gospel in our own time and then meet up for a drink to discuss it. Some of them weren't Christians, but they loved it. So why not try it with your friends too? Secondly, appreciate the richness of having four Gospels. Attempts have been made to collapse all four into one. But that misses the point. 
as we've seen, the four different portraits enrich our understanding of Jesus. For example, the Lord's Prayer is in Matthew and Luke's Gospel. In Matthew, Jesus introduces it as a model, pray like this. But in Luke's account, he says, when you pray, say this, as if we should repeat the specific words. So which is it? A set prayer or just pointers for how to pray? Well, because we have four Gospels, we can say it's both. Together, the four Gospels make up the complete picture of the extraordinary life of Jesus. So let's take a look at the most famous section of Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is high up on a mountain teaching crowds how to live a happy and blessed life. I'm sure we all want more of that. But Jesus' kingdom values turn our assumptions about happiness on their head. Jesus gave some pithy sayings called Beatitudes. That's Latin for happiness. These sayings feature in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, but with some subtle differences that enrich our understanding of what it means to live a happy life. Now in part two, we're going to take a tour of the highlights of Jesus' extraordinary life. We'll consider five in total, loosely based on Luke's Gospel. Now as you may have noticed in our daily readings this week, Luke begins his account with a flurry of angelic activity. All of heaven seems to know that something major is happening on earth. Then a teenage girl is told that she's going to get pregnant as a virgin. The child will be her son, a proper Jewish boy, and yet eternally, this is God's son, truly divine. Now, because of a Roman census, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This tiny village was, of course, the birthplace of both Ruth and David, and was always where the Messiah was to come from. This was foretold in a prophecy by Micah hundreds of years before. But you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is from of old, from ancient days. Jesus' childhood was then spent in the town of Nazareth in the northern region of Galilee. He grew up in a family with siblings, probably at least six. He would have had to learn to read the Jewish scriptures and gone on pilgrimage to Jerusalem for festivals. And then through his teens and twenties, Jesus took up his father's trade as a carpenter, working hard for a living. So Jesus experienced human life like us, with all its joys and trials. Then around the age of 30, Jesus' divine identity and calling were confirmed as his public ministry began. 
Surprisingly, Jesus himself was baptised by a wild-looking prophet nicknamed John the Baptist, who lived out in the wilderness, a sort of cross between a monk and Bear Grylls. And as Jesus came up out of the water, having been baptised, an amazing thing happened. The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. In this moment, Jesus was anointed as God's Messiah King. But the Spirit then immediately led Jesus out into the wilderness for a period of temptation. After fasting from food for 40 days, he was pretty hungry and Satan came and he urged Jesus to turn a rock into a loaf and tuck in. Now this temptation to eat something forbidden echoes right back to the opening scene of the Bible when those first humans ate in disobedience. But Jesus refused to give in. As the new Adam, he's giving a new start to humanity. In the barren wilderness, Jesus defeated evil so that one day we can return to that Garden of Eden. Now, after the wilderness victory, Jesus' public ministry began with a bang. And Jesus came into Galilee and proclaimed, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Jesus' message centred on the arrival of the kingdom. Now, when we think of the kingdom of God, I wonder what we imagine. Well, think less about a sort of geographical region and more of a spiritual realm, a realm where God is king. The kingdom is what things are like when God is in charge and everything's under his blessing. That's why the kingdom arriving is such good news. And Jesus didn't just talk about it. He demonstrated it. His miracles put things back the way God always intended them to be. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out evil and provided for the poor. This is the king giving us a glimpse of how this world was meant to be and one day how it will be. No more sickness, no injustice, no more death. However, it's important to remember Jesus' kingdom ministry did not match up to Jewish expectations. The Jews were expecting that this present age would abruptly end on the day of the Lord and that would begin the future age instantly. But Jesus' kingdom teaching revealed a different timetable with two stages. The kingdom was commenced by Jesus' first coming, but the kingdom will only be completed at his second coming. So we live between the times. The kingdom has come, and so when we pray in the name of Jesus, sicknesses are healed and lives are transformed. I think of a lady called Barbara who had severe arthritis with two sticks for walking. And when we prayed for her in the name of Jesus, she was healed and took the sticks back to the hospital to prove it. The kingdom had come. Perhaps you've witnessed one of those moments when we see the kingdom now. Jesus is on the move. 
But the kingdom has not yet fully come. Two years after being healed, Barbara had a heart attack and died. Perhaps you've experienced those tough moments when the kingdom has not yet fully come. So we live between the times. The kingdom is both now and not yet. So we pray with faith and expectancy, your kingdom come. And we wait for the day when Christ the King will return. Then reunited with Barbara and all God's people, we will declare yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. I used to play rugby at school and in one match we played against a very good player whose first name was Johnny. And I remember talking to him after the match and saying, you know, you're really good. I think you'll go far. Now, as Johnny Wilkinson kicked the winning drop goal in the Rugby World Cup final, I realised I'd had no idea who I'd been talking to. Now, Jesus' disciples must have felt something similar. They initially called Jesus Rabbi, but they soon realised he wasn't just a great moral teacher. Then, in a major turning point, halfway through the Gospels, we read this. Jesus said to his disciples, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This was a great confession of Jesus' divine status. But he then troubled his disciples by teaching that as the Messiah, he must suffer and even die. So here is the paradox of Jesus. He is the king, but not as we would expect. Not born in a palace, but in poverty. Not ruling by the sword, but by God's word. Not oppressing his enemies, but dying for them. His crown was made of thorns. Now, having shocked his disciples, Jesus then led three of them up a high mountain and there he was lit up by the glory of God. This is known as the Mount of Transfiguration and glory shone from the very being of Jesus causing his clothing to shine like the sun and a cloud descended on them. Now in the Bible this kind of cloud was not bad weather, it's the glory cloud symbolising God's presence. And look who showed up to meet with Jesus high up on this mountain. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They spoke of his exodus, which Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Moses, of course, represented the law and Elijah the prophets, together the whole of the Old Testament. So here, Old Testament meets New Testament. Moses and Elijah pass on the baton to Jesus that he might bring it all to fulfilment. And did you notice what they talked about? His exodus. What is about to happen to Jesus will bring a new exodus of salvation. Only this time, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. So when Jesus came down from the mountain, he had tunnel vision. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. In the Gospels, this is a crucial turning point. From now on, all roads lead to Jerusalem.
And the Gospels go into slow motion for this final week of Jesus' life. It's likely to have been around April 30 AD, and it was Passover time. Crowds surged into the streets, swelling the population. The atmosphere would have been charged with excitement because Passover celebrated the old exodus and longed for a new one that would bring deliverance from the Romans. Now on Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem and crowds gathered, waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, a cry for deliverance. But Jesus entered the city, not on a white stallion as a warrior, but on a donkey. This was a different kind of king and he'd come to Jerusalem for a different kind of fight. Now by Monday then, Jesus was already disappointing the Jewish crowds. Instead of turning on the Roman soldiers, he entered the Jerusalem temple and overturned the tables on their greed and corruption. On Tuesday, he taught in the temple and clashed with Jewish authorities who began to plot to kill him. And so on Thursday, it was the night of Passover. Jesus made secret preparations to celebrate this meal with his friends. But as he took the flatbread or matzo, symbolizing deliverance from Egypt, Jesus shocked them by turning the whole meaning on himself. This is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then after they'd eaten, he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood, bringing forgiveness and a new covenant with God. Finally then, on Thursday night, after celebrating the Passover meal, Jesus was falsely accused, tried and condemned to death. After being whipped and flogged, his wrists and feet were nailed to a Roman cross and he was suspended over mocking crowds from late morning until mid-afternoon, Jesus hung in agony. And yet from the cross, he spoke his most remarkable words. For his enemies, he prayed, Father, forgive them. To a criminal dying next to him, he promised, today you'll be with me in paradise. And finally, in a loud voice, he declared, it is finished. Now notice, he didn't say, I'm finished but it's finished. That cry echoes back through the Old Testament. Those sacrifices, ceremonies and cleansing rituals, it is finished. And it echoes forwards to us. Jesus roars over our guilt and sin and shame, it is finished. So as Jesus died, the ground shook and the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, we have open access to God through Jesus. That was Friday, Jesus dead and buried. But two days later, on Easter Sunday, Jesus rose again. This was not resuscitation, returning to the same old life. This is resurrection. As Jesus was laid in the tomb, it was like a caterpillar entering the cocoon. And as he rose again, he lifted our humanity to the heights, no longer fallen and dying, but rising and soaring, the same person totally metamorphosed. This is physical resurrection. This is new creation. 
And this was not make-believe or fiction. Many witnessed the empty tomb. Over a period of six weeks, Jesus appeared to dozens of his disciples. In Matthew's Gospel, he appeared on a mountain with the twelve apostles. In Mark, he appeared in a garden to a female disciple. In Luke, he walked seven miles with two of his other disciples. And in John, he made a fire, cooked fish and had breakfast on the beach with his friends. A former professor at Oxford University, Richard Swinburne, described the resurrection as the best attested fact in ancient history. There is so much evidence, it's actually far harder to come up with an alternative explanation. The fact is, Jesus defeated death and rose again as the Lord of life. So the death and resurrection of Jesus are the centre of Christianity. The word for cross in Latin is crux, from which we get our word crucial. Playing rugby a few years back, I hurt my knee and the consultant told me that I'd torn my cruciate ligament. And being rather ignorant, I said to her, so is that important? Too right it is, she said. It's the cruciate ligament. It runs right down through the centre of the knee and holds the whole thing together. The cross of Jesus Christ is crucial. It runs right through the Bible story and holds the whole thing together. So the cross has become the logo of the Christian faith. It tells us that God so loved the world that his son was crucified for us. Now, if that's true, we can't respond with a mere shrug of the shoulders and carry on as we were. C.S. Lewis summed it up like this. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it can't be is moderately important. This session brings us to a crossroads where we face a crucial question. Do we believe Jesus is God's son? And will we commit to following him? So let's reflect on John 20 verse 30. What might it mean for us to believe in Jesus and receive new life in his name? These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. <laughs>